Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here in person today with Professor Akhil Amar. Hi, Akhil. Yes, we're at Yale because Andy came up to do uh, another event with me, another book event, and I'm always grateful for his company. And we're doing this from actually my Yale Law School office. I have to say that on a personal level, it's it's quite a lot of fun to uh, do these events and meet people that are that listen to the podcast and enjoy it. So for all of you out there that uh, have have given us this great feedback, I appreciate it. And also, it's you know we know not only from the personal contact but also from statistics that lots of people are listening, and and I'm hoping that that we're having some impact. So we're grateful for the. America's Constitution ecosystem within the constitutional ecosystem. Before we return to our discussion of the ISL case and its associated amicus brief, we have to correct the record on something that we said. We were introducing ISL in our last episode and possibly in earlier podcasts as well on the topic. And we referred to a number of states where ISL was particularly relevant and possibly dangerous. Those states were characterized by blue presidential electorates, that is, they voted for uh, Joe Biden, but red state legislatures. So in such states, there's an incentive for the legislatures to jump in in various ways that ISL might dangerously permit. And among those states, we listed Nevada. Uh, This was an error. Nevada voted for Biden, true, uh, but it has a blue legislature, not red, or and it did in 2020, so it should not have been included in our list. Um, our thanks go to our sharp-eared listeners, uh, David Stewart and Judge Joe Hardy, who is a Nevada district trial judge, both of whom picked up on this and let us know. Also, just a word on our agenda here. Um, we're aware that many of you are interested in the affirmative action cases from Harvard and North Carolina that were argued before the Supreme Court this week. We are interested too, um, and we intend to cover this, but we want to read over the oral argument and prepare properly before we air an episode on it. It was just yesterday, so it, but the, uh, our coverage is coming uh, and soon. Professor Moore, uh, by the way, wrote on this topic in 1996, together with Neil Katyal, who's been on our podcast, um, in the UCLA Law Review. The article was called Baki's Fate, and we'll post it, I'm sure, when we discuss the uh, case. It'll be quite interesting to compare the arguments from 1996 to today and to see how times have changed or not, uh, as well as to dissect the oral argument. Um, so we're continuing our project uh, of last week uh, in discussing the, the uh, amicus brief, that was submitted in the Moore versus Harper case. And so a few days have gone by since it was filed, because we're taping this you know, prior to broadcast as usual. And uh, I think it's been very interesting to see the, uh, and we literally do see, uh, because of Twitter and, uh, and other outlets, the response. And how would you uh, assess it, Akil? We are very grateful for the response. Oscar Wilde said the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. That's a special issue for amicus briefs. There often are a lot of them in a given case. And we want 
the justices and their law clerks to take a look at this amicus brief. There are lots of other amicus briefs in this case and in other cases. And so the first challenge is actually to grab the, uh, the, the reader's attention, so to speak. Um, and one way to at least measure our likelihood of success on that is, um, are we grabbing attention of the uh, citizenry more generally well before the oral argument? And thanks to several friends of ours who have uh, generously uh, tweeted out endorsements of the amicus brief, I think we're succeeding in getting people to, to take a look at it. So a special thank you to our dear friend, the great Lawrence Tribe, one of the towering uh, scholars of the last uh, 50 years um, in American constitutional law. Thank you, Larry, so very much. He has, I think, over a million followers on Twitter, and he um, said some very nice things about the amicus brief, which he did read, and, and he is a scholar litigator. He writes amicus briefs as well as articles and books. So he endorsed the brief in a, in a tweet. Our dear friend Nina Totenberg also tweeted out the news about the brief, and, and both she and uh, Larry Tribe, of course, called attention to the fact that this brief is by two Amar brothers who happen to be sort of Democrats, and Professor Stephen Calabresi, who is not, who is a Republican, who's a founder, co-founder, and the national chair of the Federal Society. And of course, Nina's going to be on our podcast in the next month or so. And at some point, we're going to need to, uh, Andy, you and I sweet talk Larry Tribe into coming on. I haven't formally asked him yet, but if he, listen, if he hears this uh, uh, episode, Larry, we're going to be formally asking you to come and, and talk about your extraordinary life in the law at a time of your choosing. Other folks have, have also tweeted things out very generously. My student, Vic's colleague, Jason Massoni, said something very nice about the brief in Balkanization, which is an, a, a prominent law-related website sponsored by my friend and colleague, co-editor, the great Jack Balkan. So, so I think the word is getting out there, and, and actually people who have read it, m many of them seem to find it quite persuasive. You know, I just want to say that these these tweets, we're very grateful for them, but we didn't say ahead of time, hey, we're going to have this brief, could you please tweet out something favorable about it, and then they just do it without even reading That's not what happened. Um, what happened was that people read it and then tweeted about it and told us that they had tweeted about it. So it's, it's quite an honest uh, form of review. And also, we, we know that, there, that other members of the news media are engaged with the brief, and I do expect that there'll be more media coverage. And so why does this matter? Well, first of all, there's a lot of briefs. You know, the, a lot of Amici have taken it on themselves to, to file briefs. And I will say that I don't think that the other briefs have gotten the attention uh, that this brief has gotten. And I take that to be a sign that it'll get read. And that's, you know, I, I remember my daughter participated in the National History Day uh, competition when she was in middle school. And she said, oh, I hope I win, I hope I win. I said, I just hope you get to show your documentary and, and people get to see it. And uh, that's, that's what I think it's about. We'll put this out there, and as long as people engage with the ideas, obviously we want to, win, we want to have a particular outcome in the case because we think it's better for the country. But first step is for people to engage with these ideas. And this podcast, frankly, Andy, is part of that. Some of the people who are listening are judges. Some are law clerks. Oh, 
And of course, how could I have forgotten, silly me, uh, Judge Michael Ludig, a preeminent legal conservative, tweeted out an extremely generous assessment of the brief. And he's got a lot of credibility, especially uh, right of center. He has been a, a hero in pushing back against insurrectionists um, in the wake of the events of, of January 6th. Some of our audience may know that he was the person who actually wrote a memo directly to uh, Mike Pence, stiffening Mike Pence's legal spine on what his duty was on January 6th. And, and Pence at the end, did his duty, and that was very much with support and at his urging. Ludig, our audience may know, testified before the House Committee on on January 6th. He has paid, played a particular role in, in thinking about the events of January 6th that are not altogether unconnected to ISL, because what John Eastman was trying to do on January 6th was empower state legislatures to jump back in after the election, after the voters had, had weighed in, and grab the, the election back to themselves. That's what Eastman was trying to do. That is a particular vigorous version of ISL. And in fact, since we're talking about amicus briefs, John Eastman has filed an amicus brief in this Moore versus Harper case on the other side. And in the Small World Department, John Eastman, way back when, clerked for Michael Ludig, before he clerked for Clarence Thomas. So it's a small world. Ludig is not on Eastman's side. He's on our side. He's read our brief with great care, and he's endorsed it, and he has a lot of Twitter followers. He, he read an article uh, that Vic and I had written before in the Supreme Court Review. We've talked about it in previous episodes. He read that with great care. So thank you. Judge Ludig, thank you, Professor Tribe. Thank you, Nina Totenberg. Thank you, Professor Jason Mazzoni. I'm probably, I, I am um, omitting other people who have gone out of their way to read this thing with care and actually say, quite honestly, Andy, you're right. It's an, these are honest reviews, honest assessments. Hey, this is worth reading. Now, of course, in the Twitterverse, you're going to get some dings, and some of them may be on you know, legitimate grounds. So what what do you think has been the, the critique on the negative side to the degree that there's been one? Some folks actually have commented on the fact that it's particularly hard-hitting. Sometimes folks have just given screenshots of particular passages. Uh, Rick Hazen, a very distinguished election law scholar, had just a little screenshot. And if you just looked at that screenshot, you might think that our brief was needlessly mean. The screenshot, though, was of a passage that was in response to the fact that petitioners not only cited to a fraudulent document, they led their brief with this fraudulent document. They said themselves, these are the petitioners, the ISLers, that this was crucial to their case, and this document is a well-known fraud. It's been known to be fraudulent for basically over a century by all serious historians, and indeed in the very historical volume that petitioners cited, the fact that this was fraudulent appeared two or three pages later. They just didn't even read the entire little section that they excerpted, which they offered a snippet. Now, we mentioned all those facts, and then in the next paragraph says, we said, you know, this, this is very bad. And if you just have a screenshot of that passage, it might seem, oh, we're so mean. But in fact, we're... W was not ad hominem. It's on the merits. They 
the petitioners were citing to the United States Supreme Court an obviously fraudulent document, and we wanted the court to, to know that, and we think it goes to not just the substance of the argument, they, to repeat, led off with it and deemed it critical, we also think it goes to credibility. And of course, uh, in our last episode, we discussed the Pinckney Plan in, in some depth, and Akil made the great point that, well, even if it weren't fraudulent, it still doesn't prove the point. It doesn't. So it's wrong in so many different ways. But I think some folks who may not have had a chance to read the brief but just saw a little screenshot may get a slight misimpression. It's a very hard-hitting brief, and we're reading it aloud, um, a major portions of it. Andy, in this podcast, we did it in our last episode, and we're doing it again this, in this episode, so people can judge for themselves. It's very hard-hitting, but I think on the merits, on issue after issue after issue, the petitioners actually are wrong, and on some of the things, they're egregiously wrong, and saying things that are flatly false to the court. Okay, so why don't we pick up with our project of reviewing the brief clause by clause. So we finished off with uh, question three last time, the question of whether the ISL critics, meaning us and others, ignore the word legislature, and then we went on to point out how we not only do not ignore it, but we honor it, but we also define it in its historical context. And if it comes down to one word in the Constitution, the word would be legislature. Remember very famously, Bill Clinton said, oh, it depends on what the meaning of the word is. Is Well, here, at some point, in some way, you could say it's all about the question of what is the legislature. And in ordinary language, you might think, well, the legislature could never include the governor. The governor isn't, in some ordinary language sense, part of the legislature. The governor is in a different part of town. The governor is the executive, you might say, and the, the legislature is a different branch. But in fact, the governor is part of the legislature. If you understand legislature not to mean an institution, a fixed institution, but a lawmaking system, a lawmaking system defined by a master constitution, the parent constitution, state constitution, or for when it comes to Congress, the, the federal constitution, and a constitution that could redefine lawmaking system over time. So what we just ended it with was a very powerful textual argument buttressed by case law that legislature has to be understood, is best understood, as the lawmaking system. So that includes the governor in every state because the governor is part of the lawmaking system through the veto. And three or four subpoints on that. One, the governor was not part of the lawmaking system in any state except Massachusetts at the founding, but is today. So maybe it means something different today than did the founding. Why? Because state constitutions have changed over time and they have the right to change the lawmaking system. Second, and related, well, if you can add governors to the system, why not electoral redistricting commissions or an initiative process or a referendum process or involve state judges? Because the state uh, constitution can reconfigure lawmaking power. And third, our definition that legislature is the lawmaking system is at the heart of a unanimous Supreme Court decision decided in 1932 that everyone until now has, has accepted as absolutely bedrock. A case called Smiley, in which the court 
answered this very question, is the governor part of the legislature within the meaning of the election clause? Answer, yes, he is, because the proper definition is lawmaking system and not an institution. Oh, actually, any one kind of an, um, final point, Vic added this in the, in the brief. It's a brilliant point. Congress is mentioned again and again in the Constitution, and sometimes Congress means the House and Senate, an institution, Capitol Hill, the people who, who hang out in Capitol Hill, and sometimes it means the same word Congress, and there's not always a clear indication that it has a different meaning, but it does. Oftentimes it means House, Senate, and President in a lawmaking system in which the veto, of course, is part of the legislature. So when the Constitution says Congress can regulate the territories, Yes, that's Congress acting with the House and the Senate and also with the President as part of the process. And if that's true for Congress under the federal constitution, we say that's true for state legislatures under state constitutions. I think one way to think about it is to put yourself in the shoes of a Massachusetts lawmaker in 1789. The constitution is passed, and now you have to set up your first set of federal elections. Right. Now, you have a state constitution that created the legislature, and one of the things that it provides for is that when the legislature enacts things by law, that it, the, the governor has a veto. Right. Um, so if you say, well, here's the constitution, let me read it and see, I'm the Massachusetts legislature, what does it tell me that I should do? And it says the legislature can make these rules about the federal elections. Okay, that means we get to, oh, wait, but we have a governor. Is the governor part of the legislature? Well, if he is, if he isn't, then I have to make my federal, I have to make my rules for the federal election without him. Mm -hmm. But if he is, then I just continue to do what I've been doing, and he's part of it. And that means that the legislature is including the governor in our case. But in no other state was that the case. So there can't be a uniform definition of legislature if we're going to do something different from what every other state does. So what do they do? They go ahead and use the governor, and the governor has the, has the ability to, be a, to, to have a veto. So Massachusetts, looking at this, in 1789, had to decide one way or the other, and they decide that the legislature is what our state constitution says it is, and it includes the governor. And then subsequently, in every other state in the Union, they wind up including the governor, even though none of them did at the time. And new states do, and George Washington approves the admission to the union of new states that have legislatures set up in this way. So that all happens in 1789 and later. Right. And on the other side, we have the uh, petitioners, and what do they say as their evidence of what legislature is? A dictionary from 1755. Before there even is a con the U.S. Constitution. And not even from America. Right, Samuel in Johnson's. In a system that is based on parliamentary sovereignty um, rather than popular sovereignty, where there isn't a constitution, a parent constitution, outside the legislative system creating and bounding and limiting, the delimiting the legislative system. So, yes, Dictionaries aren't going to decide this. Scalia focused on dictionaries. That's not proper originalism. Originalism focused on what the American people actually agreed to. And what they agreed to was a word legislature. And in most of the states, 11 of the 13, the institution and the lawmaking system were one and the same. 
in Massachusetts is different because you got an executive, a governor's part of the lawmaking system. He's not legis part of the, maybe the legislature in name, but he's part of the legislative, the lawmaking power in function. And he was involved. And in New York, which is the other state out of the 13, it's the governor, but not the governor alone, but with a bunch of judges. And oh my gosh, judges actually in 1789 in New York were part of that first set of laws passed to regulate the first federal elections. Just like you said in Massachusetts, but now it's in New York. Are the folks in the legislative institution, the, the, the House and the Senate, this bicameral entity, are they going to submit something to the governor and the council of revision before it's an enacted law? And they say, yes, we understand legislature in the Constitution to be the lawmaking system in New York, and in New York that includes the lower house and the upper house of the legislature, understood as an entity, plus the council of revision, because actually the Constitution is really telling us to use our lawmaking system as defined by our Constitution. That's originalism, Andy. We're looking at 1789, how the people in America actually understood this word. And that's not in petitioner's brief at all. Candidly, it's not in almost any of the other briefs. Um, even on our side, they don't quite focus on it uh, like a laser, as they should. And final point, and we mentioned this last week, you know who does focus on it? The Supreme Court of the United States in the Smiley case. Wow, they focus on just this, Massachusetts and New York in 1789, the role of the governor in Massachusetts in the first election law passed governing congressional elections and the role of the governor and the council of revision in New York. They focus on just that. And, and I think I may have told you um, offline, maybe I shared it with our audience last week, I can't remember. What's really interesting about that, that this case called Smiley from 1932, says that's the heart of the case. The heart of the case is legislature means lawmaking system, and, and it's crystal clear from New York and Massachusetts in 1789. And who writes the opinion? It's the Chief Justice of the United States back then in 1932 for unanimous court, and he, he makes a couple of points. He says it's 1789 in these two states, and that's key. And every other state since, when it has added the veto, has actually involved the governor in the, the, the process of uh, legislating for a federal election. So it's a continuous practice, very widespread in all the states. And he says that's evidentiary of constitutional understanding. That's kind of custom and tradition. He also says, oh, and they did it in the first set of elections in 1789 in the two states where it mattered, Massachusetts and New York. That's originalism. So he has originalism, and he has custom and tradition, and he is Charles Evans Hughes, Chief Justice, writing for unanimous court. What's really interesting is that Charles Evans Hughes, earlier in life, had been, wait for it, the governor of New York, wielding a veto pen. And so he's really focused on this issue. He sees this issue with distinctive clarity. And once you acknowledge that the governor is part of the legislature, that the veto process is part of the legislature, you have committed yourself to the idea that legislature means lawmaking system. That decides the case. Lawmaking system as defined by state constitutions which have changed over time. That decides the case. Andy, we're done. <laughs> Although the, the episode isn't done. But conceptually, that's it. That's all you need to explain. The, the, at oral argument, I think it would be brilliant for the folks on our side to just get up and just ask a simple question. Is the governor part of the legislature or not? 
So as we as we go on here, we we just mentioned in New York that there are judges involved um, at at the founding in this council, and uh, that's relevant to our next question. It is. So uh, Akil's going to now pick up with question four in our brief. Right, and the, and remember the brief, and this was. Oh, I, excuse me, though, but before before uh, we do, I recommend that all the listeners, if you haven't done it already, download the brief. You can get it on on our website. Or you can get it on the Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov. Look under docket, search for more. It's M-O-O-R-E, more versus Harper. And then you'll, you'll scroll down and find the brief. You can download it. And that, I think, will make it easier to, as we go along um, to, to follow along. Absolutely. And remember, this brief is written in a slightly unconventional way. It's just a series of questions, like FAQs on a website. And Candidly, Andy, we did it that way in part because we thought it would be more user-friendly for our fellow citizens, but we also thought it might be slightly eye-catching for a clerk or a justice. We're trying to offer, candidly, a breath of fresh air, a, a slightly different way of doing a brief because, to repeat, we have to get their eyeballs. So, this is question four. Is empowering state judges in congressional districting particularly problematic? No, although we appreciate why people steeped in federal court jurisprudence might think so. From the 1700s to the present, the relationship between state legislatures and state courts has been very different than the relationship between Congress and federal courts. At the founding, many state judges had powerful legislative roles. As noted earlier, New York's top judges sitting in a council of revision with the state executive, had a veto over ordinary legislation. Also, state legislators at times had judicial roles. Influenced by the British House of Lords, some states at the founding vested high judicial duties in the state legislature's upper chamber or the legislature as a whole. And by the way, the court made that clear in a very early case, 1798, called Calder v. Bull which we cite at this point. It's a very famous pre-martial court opinion that actually said Connecticut Supreme Court is actually Connecticut's legislature. <laughs> the, the legislature can act whenever it wants as a Supreme Court, and the justices in Calder versus Bull said, that's fine, states are allowed to do that. Not at the federal level, but states are allowed to do that. Back to the brief. The super strict distinction that ISLers rely upon, a sharp delineation between state legislatures on the one hand and state courts on the other, simply did not exist at the founding. Reflecting this revolutionary era landscape, the U.S. Constitution did not generally prevent a state from giving lawmaking and adjudicative power to the same body. The Constitution has always allowed a state to have two Supreme Courts or two legislatures. Today, Texas has two Supreme Courts, and many states split legislative power between an ordinary legislature and a special initiative or referendum process. The Constitution also allows a state to make its Supreme Court its Supreme Legislature, or vice versa, as this Court's members said long ago in Calder v. Bull. Remember, that's 1798. Even now... State courts are often more like ordinary legislatures than are unelected independent redistricting commissions, which the court explicitly upheld in this Arizona case, AARC, and blessed in the more recent Rucho case. That was about gerrymandering. State judges 
are often elected, and they openly fashion common law policy. In one of the 20th century's most iconic cases, Justice Louis Brandeis was emphatic, quote, whether the law of the state shall be declared in its legislature in a statute or by its highest court in a decision is not a matter of federal concern, unquote. That's 1938. Petitioners turn federalism on its head, upside down, when they stymie states' ability to restructure their governments as they, that is the states, see fit. Petitioners take a clause that was designed to respect and involve states and turn it into a clause straightjacketing states and wrongly aggrandizing one faraway federal court, that's the U.S. Supreme Court, that could never be expert on the unique laws of each state. Although the Chief Justice's dissent in this Arizona case tried to distinguish between states' devices that supplement the ordinary state legislature and those that supplant it, the court majority in that case correctly rejected this distinction, which cannot be squared with Article I's text. If legislature is read flat-footedly, a la petitioners, to mean this some entity, then any mere supplementation of the modern bicameral legislature, even by a governor, to say nothing of auxiliary commissioners or judges, would violate this flat-footedly defined legislature's power to prescribe, that is, to call the shots. So if legislature means House and Senate on their own, you can't even involve the governor. Oh, if instead, as we maintain, legislature means lawmaking system, the lawmaking system, established by the state constitution, which can change it from time to time, then even a supplanting redistricting commission or state court is permissible. If a state constitution can leave redistricting to the ordinary elected legislature but prescribe every little detail, every jot and tittle of the criteria and process that the legislature must use, and Chief Justice Roberts says, oh, you can, you can limit them in all sorts of ways. Well, we say, if you can do all of that, well, then the state constitution must also be allowed to generously empower other institutions for redistricting purposes. And in fact, and this is where we end, Andy, this, this answer, in the more recent Rucho case, the court doubled down on this earlier Arizona case in an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts himself. So in effect, he says, I accept that. I dissented in that earlier case. I accept it now. And I think there is a role for state judges and state redistricting commissions that look just like the Arizona case. And there's a role for that in states like Florida and Colorado and elsewhere. Florida is actually the state that gave us Bush versus Gore. So John Roberts has repudiated his earlier dissent and his supplement supplanting distinction. And in this more recent case, an opinion by the Chief Justice, John Roberts, he was joined by the, the earlier Arizona dissenters, that is Justices Thomas's, Thomas and Alito, plus Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. In other words, Andy, we're saying the conservatives on the court have already joined an opinion repudiating ISL very, very, very explicitly and directly. Now they can say, oh, you know, we, we, we didn't know what we were signing on to or something like that, but that's what they're going to have to say. Wow. Well, how do you uh, square that with even granting cert in this case? I mean, you know, you need at least four justices had to decide to hear the case. Um, if, you know, if they've already decided the case by virtue of Rucho, um, then... You know, why hear it? 
to make it clear. I'm hoping that they're deciding it to actually make clear that we meant what we said in Root Show. There are also some new members on the court, you know, so, so we will see. But I am not of the view that they took this case clearly to overrule the Arizona case. And if they were to do that, it would be inconsistent with an awful lot. It would be inconsistent with the idea that they're going to stand by precedent unless it's egregiously wrong. Okay? And they say they believe in precedent, and I am saying in this brief, in no uncertain terms, and so is the co-founder and the chair of the Federalist Society, and so is Dean Vic Amar, the Arizona case was not only not egregiously wrong, it was right and plainly right and stands solidly on Smiley, which is a unanimous Supreme Court decision from 1932 from the Chief Justice. These cases are not egregiously wrong. They're absolutely right. And if you want to repudiate them, oh my gosh, that's not proper originalism. That's not what you said in Dobbs. And, and it's not what you yourselves said with all due respect um, to Just Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, you yourself joined the Chief Justice in the Rucho decision. And so did Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. So that's one point. Second point is the Chief Justice really is not as much of an originalist as some of the others. He's a precedent person. And even when he loses in a case, he says, fine, but it's now precedent. It binds me. I have tremendous respect for him, that in Rucho, he accepted the legitimacy of a case in which he had dissented, the Arizona case. And he, he actually didn't treat it in a stingy way. He endorsed it and built upon it and echoed it and good for him. And by the way, he did the same thing, frankly. He, in abortion, he doesn't like Roe versus Wade at all, but he gave it more weight in the Texas SB8 case and even in the Dobbs case than did some of the others. He's an institutionalist. And wow, this would be like, in football, a double reverse or something. Okay, you dissent in AIRC, you being the chief, fine. But then you actually say, oh, I'm now on board in Rucho, and now you're going to you know, flip back yet again? That's, that's a double whiplash. That's not the John Roberts, who is that kind of steady as she goes, steering the ship of state very cautiously and carefully, trying to avoid hairpin turns. So this brief, quite candidly, is aimed quite directly at John Roberts. He's an institutionalist and so are we. He's trying to actually hold the center of the court. Um, we're trying to do that by saying, listen, we're two Democrats and a Republican and we are a centrist coalition saying this is what the law actually is. It's the law as a matter of originalism, for reasons we've talked about, but it's also the law as a matter of the precedence. Here, the precedence and originalism actually line up. And you say, again, Akhil, if all of that is true, why did they even grant review of the case? They, t in order to decide it. And, and this brief, remember, hadn't been written yet. And, they, and some of the justices may not actually have known just how correct the Arizona case is. And other justices might not like Arizona, but might not understand, you can't draw a line between Arizona and the Smiley case. You can't distinguish between redistricting commissions and governor's vetoes, because either, you know, when you reach a fork in the road, take it, either it's the legislature as an entity, and then the governor's veto can't be involved, 
or it's the lawmaking system as understood by state constitutions, and then Smiley is obviously right. Governor's vetoes are part of it, but so are ele- election redistricting commissions, if the state constitution so provides. So is a role for state courts, if the state constitution so pro- uh, provides. Now, again, the justices initially agree to hear a case so that they can look at it carefully, and I actually taking them at their word that they're going to look at it with great care and they haven't decided it yet. But here's now my challenge. Because I believe that I really do, audience, that our, our brief lays it out clearly and compelling you and you can judge for yourself. Because I believe that, my biggest challenge is not once you read it, are you going to agree with me? Because, oh, we've got the goods as a matter of history, as a matter of law, as a matter of a, a text, as a matter of structure, as a matter of precedent. The biggest challenge is, please, clerks, please, uh, your honors, with all um, humility and respect, read this thing. Okay, We know there are tons of amicus briefs out there, but we actually think this one will genuinely be worth your while because it's saying stuff that's really important that the other briefs aren't saying clearly. Okay, yeah, I mean, I do think uh, that... uh it's hard to read Rucho and not think that the that the chief has renounced his dissent in the AIRC. It's not just you know grudging you know feasance to it. It's it's a full throated. He went out yeah. of his way to do this. Yes. Wow! And yet some of my friends out there are trying to revive this supplant supplement distinction that the chief himself has reputed. They're more Catholic than the Pope, so to speak. They include my friend Will Bode and my friend Michael McConnell. They, they wrote a piece um, that I actually don't think is coherent, truth be told, because they don't understand, and I think many people don't understand, the key question is what the meaning of the word is, is, but here it's not the word is, it's the word legislature. And once you understand it is lawmaking system as defined by the state constitution from time to time, and that obviously that includes governors in ways that it didn't at the founding, well then it can include redistricting commissions as well, and there's no supplant supplement distinction, and there's no space, there's no gap, there's no air whatsoever between, conceptually, the Smiley case in 1932, which was unanimous, and this Arizona case, which was um, much more recent, involving um, redistricting commissions, and it was 5-4. Okay, so let's move on to question five. This one's a short one. Question five. Weren't legislatures chosen, that is in Article 1, because they are the most representative bodies. Our answer. This structural argument boomerangs. If a state's legislature is preferred because it answers to the state's voters, then what's being privileged is the sovereignty slash will of the state's people, not the legislature per se. If the people of a given state decide that the best way to effectuate their will is by creating or amending their state constitution to constrain or restructure legislative power, contra ISL, then that state constitutional decision actually promotes the underlying values of popular sovereignty and federalism. So, in a nutshell, basically, we're just now working on different variations about what's a legislature and why the legislature. So, in what's a legislature, we said it's really a lawmaking system, as defined by a state constitution in an ongoing way and not 
a fixed entity, House and Senate without the governor or without a council of revision or what have you. Okay? And and our reasons for picking that initial definition, a lawmaking system as defined by the state constitution are, well, that's what the founders actually did in 1789 in places like Massachusetts and New York. That's a historical argument. Well, that's that actually makes sense of what virtually every state has done for over a hundred years. The governor has been involved in the process, even if the governor isn't technically part of the legislature understood narrowly as an entity. Well, that's what the Smiley case established resoundingly in 1932, unanimously, and no one has thought otherwise. And this enables the people of each state to modify their understanding of the proper system of government. They can kind of reallocate legislative power and redefine it over the years. So those were all the reasons. And now we're addressing a counter-argument. Well, isn't the legislature supposed to be, wasn't it picked because it was sort of uniquely democratic, accountable, representative? We say, if that's the idea, that ours is a better definition of that because we allow the people of a state over time to, to modify things. In the sense, we're saying the people of the state are kind of the ultimate legislature that, that redefine the temporary legislature at any moment f- um, from time to time. So that's just a, a structural argument. And, and you see, Andy, these aren't separate arguments we're making. They kind of fit together. There's a coherence here. There's a, a narrative because we actually have a theory of the case which other folks don't have. Right. I mean, I think that it's a very clear expression of the people's sovereignty. And you can see it because... Several states have had multiple constitutions over time. Not just amendments, but they actually... New constitutions. And and that's what... And see how it fits our historical argument. John Adams says that's what people are fighting for. Self-government over time, state by state. Right. So, it, and again, sometimes judges tend to self-aggrandize judges. The legislature can tend to self-aggrandize itself. But in the end, it's the people that define what the way they want to be represented. And I think this... This, so this kind of notion of the people defining the way they want it to be run uh, will come back later in some, some other questions. I agree. Okay, the yeah. sixth question? Yes. Six. And you see this is a kind of FAQ style, frequently asked questions. These, these are the things that we think are on the minds of, of serious jurists. Um, we're trying to actually be a friend to the court, a true amicus, and offer very straight answers to the obvious questions. And, and see, we don't think that they took cert for this purpose or that purpose. We're actually assuming they, four justices, agreed to take cert to, to figure this out, to actually definitively answer something that people have been disagreeing about, to do the right thing legally. That's, we're, we're taking the court um, at face value as trying to do, in good faith, just what we're trying to do, which is figure out what the law really is here very respectfully, trying to offer our expertise, our special expertise as constitutional scholars and historians who uh, may be aware of certain things that the justices, just they can't be experts on each and every aspect of constitutional law. And we think this is one where we've really studied it. Okay, so here's question six, a question that 
might, um, we're anticipating, in effect, oral argument, what a justice might ask. What about other provisions of the Constitution? Well, Professors Amar and Amar and Calabresi, are you saying that everywhere, basically, there, uh, when it says legislature, basically the state can redefine that at will going forward? We say, here's our answer. What about other provisions of the Constitution? They may well be different. Oh, there may not be a one-size-fits-all answer here. Unlike Articles 1 and 2, which our audience will remember are about congressional elections and presidential elections, some constitutional provisions use specific language that reflects specific historical concerns with some governmental, state governmental institutions vis-a-vis -vis others. For example, Section 2 of the 17th Amendment, which is about replenishment of senators when there's a, a vacancy in the U.S. Senate, Section 2 of the 17th Amendment, in a single sentence, pointedly differentiates between the legislatures and executive authorities of states and confers appointment powers only on the latter, that is the executive. As one of us, Vikram Amar, has shown elsewhere, leading proponents of that amendment, that is the 17th Amendment, publicly voiced concerns about malapportionment and the racial discrimination it often reflected. These specific concerns help explain and express 17th Amendment preference for governors over state legislatures in filling state vacancies, and that's because governors are elected statewide, and they were thus immune from gerrymandering and malapportionment. They're elected statewide, one person, one vote. But no comparably pointed linguistic contrast between a state legislature and other state organs, much less between a state legislature and the state constitution that creates it, exists in Article I and Article II. Nor is there any meaningful history to support such distinctions. Now, and here's the backstory to that section. This is Vic, okay, because Vic is actually, I, I, truthfully, I, I'm particularly expert as a historian of the founding, having written a book that I haven't plugged in the last 15 seconds, the, the words that made us. We're here at Yale today, Andy, because you came up for a, a book event here at Yale in connection with that book. So I did a lot of work, especially on the 1789 stuff and the state constitutions under the Articles of Confederation and um, under the early constitutional experience stuff. This is stuff where Vic is the world's expert. The 17th Amendment, he's actually written several articles on the 17th Amendment. He wrote his student note on the Senate and the Constitution, the uh, 17th Amendment is a restructuring of the Senate. So this has been an area of his expertise since his days as a student. He's written additional articles on the 17th Amendment, uh, law review articles, and lots of pop pieces. He's testified in the U.S. Senate on issues uh, related to Senate replenishment. And when Vic testified before the Senate, it was on a bipartisan basis. One of the people who actually worked closely with Vic in some testimony on how to think about Senate replenishment and other issues was the Republican senator of a very Republican state, uh, the late Tom Coburn. So, so this section, a big shout out to uh, my co-author and kid brother, Vic. This is really his point. And we're saying, oh, in some parts of the Constitution, Actually, there is a specific interest in the legislature as opposed to the executive, but not um, when it comes to congressional or presidential elections, for that matter. Just as sometimes Congress means the House and Senate acting alone, the president shall give information from time to time on the State of the Union to Congress. That's the House and Senate as an institution. Sometimes the word Congress means that in the Constitution. Other times, 
it means House and Senate and President in the lawmaking system. Sometimes the word legislature, there might be a reason that it's singled out, but not in, uh, and the 17th Amendment is an example, because they didn't trust the legislature to replenish Senate vacancies because legislatures could be malapportioned and gerrymandered, and governors were going to be one person, one vote statewide. But there wasn't, we argue in this brief, a comparable commitment to legislature as distinct from executive in Article One, And if there were, Smiley would be wrong, you know, to, because it's involving the governor, the executive, who's not part of the legislature in any ordinary sense. And Andy, we are back to the decision that you talked about before that the people in Massachusetts made in 1789. Should we involve the governor or not if we're faithfully trying to carry out a clause of the Constitution that says the legislature should come up with the rules for congressional elections? And they said, when they thought about it carefully, ah, for this purpose, legislature includes the executive, includes the governor. I suppose you could, one could make an argument saying here's a good reason to only involve the legislature in election lawmaking, but no one that I've seen has really proposed any such the thing. The other side doesn't have a theory. It doesn't have much evidence, frankly. It just has a word, okay? And it can pound its fist on the table as much as it likes, but the problem is the word is capable of at least two sensible interpretations. Legislature as entity or legislature as lawmaking system. The legislative, the lawmaking power, the lawmaking system. And it turns out that the cases, especially this Smiley case we keep coming back to, say emphatically it's the legislative system, it involves the governor and the veto. More recent cases have said the same thing. Earlier cases said the same thing. And in 1789, the Massachusetts lawmakers said and did the same thing, ditto for New York. And that thing makes more structural sense, a popular sovereignty sense, more democratic sense, because the people of a state from time to time can restructure the thing. In the 17th Amendment, the argument actually is for certain purposes, the governor is more democratic, you see, because he's picked, she's picked, one person, one vote statewide. By the way... That, mean, that argues today, in fact, truthfully, for state courts because they're picked statewide, one person, one vote. They're not gerrymandered. They're not malapportioned. Frankly, that's why a lot of Republicans prefer state legislatures because they are, and they don't like state courts or state governors for that matter because they aren't. And so if they go around saying, oh, we would never think of challenging the governor's veto role. This is just about state courts. Don't believe them for a second. The minute they win this case, I promise you, they're going to go on saying on Fox and elsewhere, oh, governors aren't part of the legislature. You know, we have, we're doing a random poll of 15 people in the street. Is the governor part of the legislature? And in ordinary language, a lot of times people say no. The problem is the Smiley case says so unanimously. And every state has included the governor in its system for 150 years, you know, virtually every state. So don't be fooled uh, when they say, oh, this case has nothing to do with gubernatorial vetoes. It has everything to do with that because the key conceptual question is, what's a legislature? And we have a theory about what a legislature is, and it's a theory that fits with history and text and the structure of the Constitution as a whole, and Supreme Court case law over a hundred years. And of course, coherently, even, even in the end, even if you did come up with a with an argument that says, "Well, 
here's a reason that it would be a good idea for the legislature to be limited uh, to only the elected body. It still doesn't change the fact that the people have the right to structure the government the way they want to. Even if, even if you can, you know, person X, court, judge X, you know, come up with a, an argument why it might be a good idea, it's not the proper role it's, of the it's court. It's not how Massachusetts thought about it in 1789 or New York, or the st it's not how the states thought about it under the Articles of Confederation that used this word, or under the early Constitution state constitutions, you know, uh, interpreting this very word. George Washington is signing his name to um, laws that are admitting new states into the Union, Vermont, Kentucky, Tennessee, with state constitutions that are regulating their state legislatures in anti-ISL ways. And that's because George Washington is reading, the, and the first Congress that's admitting, all, uh, and the second Congress that's admitting all these states are reading the Constitution our way, reading the word legislature to mean the lawmaking system of a state as defined by its parent state constitution, which is what the American Revolution was all about, state constitutions getting to structure internal governance of states. Okay, so let's go on to question seven. What is the proper role for federal courts here? You know, an obvious question for a federal j justice to ask. Our answer, a limited one resting on bedrock principles underlying Erie and the Tenth Amendment. Erie is a landmark case that I'll tell you about. Generally, federal courts should intervene. Now we're giving the judges a test that they should apply. This is the rule that they should think about for their role. Federal courts should intervene only when state judges so grossly misinterpret state law that their conduct when applied to state elections violates due process or other rule of law principles. So we're saying, imagine this isn't a congressional election or a presidential election. If this were an election for, for dog catcher or city councilman, you generally defer to state courts on that unless what they're doing is so egregious that it's, it's not even plausible legal interpretation. And we're saying there's no bigger role for the Supreme Court here just because it happens to be a congressional election or a presidential one as distinct from a state office election. Back to the brief. What might at first blush seem to a federal court as state court overreaching might in fact be proper under that state's legal and interpretive traditions. There is no general federal common law of state constitutional interpretation or state legislative interpretation or state common law interpretation for that matter. That's a, a somewhat technical formulation. It just means that, that there's no federal rule for how to go about construing state law, state by state by state. That's up to actually each state setting up its system. So in other words, you don't have to, the, the Supreme Court may favor, let's say, a textualist interpretation at one point, but they can't enforce that method of interpreting the law on the state courts. Interpreting state law. Right. They could enforce that when it comes to interpreting the federal constitution in state court or federal statutes in state court, and that's the next paragraph. The test cannot oh. <laughs> be whether a state Supreme Court is suitably textualist, as some members of this court, that is the Supreme Court, might seek to divine textualism. A given state legislature, the state people who elect that state legislature, and the spirit of that state's overarching state constitution that gave birth to and sustains that state legislature might well prefer a 
a state law jurisprudence that's more purposive or structural or holistic or precedent-based or representation-reinforcing or democracy-promoting or canon-driven than relentlessly textual. Now, that's some technical legal jargon that I've put in here, but basically I'm signaling to the justices there are different ways for genuinely faithful and thoughtful judges to go about the task of interpreting a statute or a constitution. And what I'm saying is when the ultimate thing that's being interpreted is the state constitution, because remember, a state legislature is the state lawmaking system is defined by the state constitution, that's up to state Supreme Courts to decide what the state constitution means, and they don't have to be ruthlessly textless as the Supreme Court defines textualism. And by the way, the Supreme Court itself isn't always textualist. And if it were, what about all those episodes we have about substantive due process, for example? Because mm -hmm. the word substance ain't there in the text of the Constitution. Well, all due respect, Your Honors. Okay, so uh, back to the brief. Petitioners, that is the ISL crowd, seductively urge this court, the Supreme Court, to intermeddle in the name of st the state legislature, which may well prefer a different interpretive method than the one favored by petitioners. So here's the big bottom line point on all this. We're arguing for this limited role for the Supreme Court um, in interpreting the meaning of state constitutions. Because what the Supreme Court, you know, what the petitioner is saying is, oh, these clauses are vague and state courts are doing, you know, making stuff up as opposed to substantive due process you see at the federal level. But we're saying that's a question of state constitutional law to be decided by state judges. Why? Because if state justices err, or make a mistake. They are subject to correction by state legal actors. They can be thrown out of office, they can be impeached, all sorts of stuff. Um, there can be state constitutional amendments. But not so if this, that is the U.S. Supreme Court, errs, makes a mistake. North Carolina state judges were picked by North Carolinians. This court's members were not. Have any of the current justices taken the North Carolina bar or practice law in North Carolina? We kind of ask sotto voce. As tempting as a large federal judicial role might be, it runs afoul of Federalism 101. Indeed, petitioners, the ISL crowd, violate federalism's first principles in at least three distinct ways. First, petitioners twist a clause designed to affirm states' rights to a proposed doctrine sharply limiting a, state's, a state people's ability to structure its own legislative system, its general right to redesign its, quote, legislature, unquote, as it sees fit. Second, petitioners deny that state Supreme Courts are the definitive interpreters of state law, which is Federalism 101. Every first-year law student learns that state courts are the definitive interpreters of state law. Third, Petitioners fail to recognize that even when the U.S. Constitution builds on state law and state institutions in certain respects, federal courts must generally defer to good faith state court interpretations of state law. In short, petitioners are urging on this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, a massive national power grab. In response, this court, the Supreme Court of the United States, should remain true to bedrock principles of federalism and institutional modesty. And the backstory there is that, that language, massive national power gram, oh, that's Steve Calabrese's language. Um, he really feels this very strongly, that 
a supreme, that one national court should not be reaching out to grab from state supreme courts what are fundamentally and essentially issues of state law, especially about how the state governs itself, how its lawmaking system operates. Okay, well, I think this is quite consistent with what we've been saying all along. Um, it's just kind of another take on it. But I think you know mm -hmm. the, this uh, the federalism angle is hit pretty hard in uh, quite a number of the other uh, amicus briefs. It is. There's one uh, signed by a whole bunch of conferences of chief justices. It was um, authored by one of Vic's closest friends in the world, um, one of my former students, the great Evan Kaminker. He's the former dean of the University of Michigan uh, School of Law, and it's a really great brief in which a whole bunch of chief justices signed on to a brief saying, please do not usurp our role as the interpreters of our respective state statutes and state constitutions. So it is very much consistent. This, this brief has a narrative. It fits together. It coheres um, in ways that some of the other briefs, truthfully, are a little bit more jumbled on, on all sides. This one tries to have a coherent narrative. What's the particular angle in this question? It's a question about the special role of federal courts as such in the whole system. The others have been about, well, what's a state legislature and a state constitution and, and state governors and, and state electoral commissions and all the rest. Here we're saying the flip side of all of that is what's your role, federal Supreme Court? And the answer is somewhat modest. So now we're going to get into the, uh, the precedents a little deeper. Which is a little bit more about the U.S. Supreme Court. We're moving a little bit away from pure originalism toward more of a focus on the court itself what its role is and what it has said in the past. So you see there's a kind of gentle arc to the ordering of our questions. Just as a general notion of originalism, um, when you look at precedents, do you consider whether those precedents were themselves originalist in, uh, in assessing whether your argument is originalist? Yes, it's important to note whether previous judges were trying to play the originalist game Harry Blackman was not in Roe. It didn't remotely look like constitutional law, and that's what John Ely said. John Hart Ely, uh, shortly after it was decided, we talked about all of that in our Walter Dellinger episode and some of our Dobbs episodes. And the Dobbs case, Sam Alito says, I, Sam Alito, and my colleagues are giving less deference to Roe because it didn't even try to be originalist. Yes, you should be more deferential to judges who are trying to do principled originalism. And Andy, I had a friend who looked at the first paragraph. Uh, Andy is, is, is giggling. The first paragraph in its first draft, and the first paragraph said, originalism, 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 and then, oh, and also this court's precedents support our conclusion. And Andy said, that last sentence seems a bit of a tack on. And I said, you're right, Andy, because I, I haven't closed the, the loop. I should have said, and I will now say at the, in the last sentence of the first paragraph, that originalism compels that petitioners lose. So do the Supreme Court's cases. And those cases themselves exemplify principled originalism. And that's now what we're about to return to in question eight. What about this court, that is the U.S. Supreme Court's prior case law? Our answer, definitive case law cuts hard against petitioners. Petitioners invoke language from an 1892 case, it's called McPherson versus Blacker. 
but the cryptic dicta, the cryptic language from this case is rank dicta and confused dicta at that. What does that mean? Dicta means language that wasn't necessary for the decision at all. Now that seems very conclusory, but we cite to an earlier article where we explain why McPherson is dicta and confused, and, and Vic wrote a lot of that passage. So, so in one sentence we say, don't pay attention to this 1892 case. It wasn't remotely on its facts about anything closely relevant to what we're talking about here. And, by the way, it talked out of both sides of its mouth. Unsurprisingly, because it was talking about things that weren't involved in the facts at hand. So sometimes that's more likely to happen when judges start to talk about things that are far afield from the facts before them. So say, we say, McPherson is not going to be very helpful. The hurried pace of litigation in Bush v. Gore, which was a 2000 case, prompted mistakes by three justices, whose views were rejected by a court majority that day. So we're saying, do not build on um, certain aspects of uh, what three justices said in Bush v. Gore, Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas. And once again, that seems really conclusory, but we cite to this article that Vic and I wrote in Supreme Court Review, really criticizing the Bush three. Andy, other briefs, amicus briefs and others, are actually having nicer things to say about that, that, Bush, those, that Bush concurrence. We don't um, have nice things to say. And we're aware that we're therefore criticizing Chief Justice Rehnquist, for whom Chief Justice Roberts clerks, clerked. We're criticizing... Clarence Thomas, who sits on the case, but we think that Clarence Thomas is um, a very honest and principled person, and we think he was wrong back then, and we actually have a reason why we think he's wrong, because the court was very rushed in that case. It didn't have a chance to actually read elaborate briefs submitted by scholars and others. We actually really are hoping and expecting Clarence Thomas to actually this time around to have more time to engage the serious scholarly argument and, and maybe he'll be persuaded, maybe he won't, but we're actually encouraging him to not just think that um, uh, because he decided a certain thing uh, in 2000, he should do the same thing. The court didn't agree with him that day. That's as a matter of precedent. And we also say it was very hurried and rushed. Take your time. He has changed his mind on important things in the past. Hugo Black changed his mind on important things in the past. In Adamson, he actually took a contrary position. We talked about the Adamson case in a few, uh, a couple of episodes ago. Maybe his greatest decision ever, it was actually a case involving self-incrimination where he actually took an exact opposite position from one that had taken his first year on the court, a case called Palco. Great justices sometimes change their mind when they confront new evidence. And so that's what that sentence is all about. There was an earlier case, it's sometimes called Bush 1, in the Bush v. Gore litigation in 2000. It's called Palm Beach. And we say it decided precisely nothing on the merits. It actually was a punt of a certain sort. So those are three cases that the ISL crowd point to. Bush 1, but it said nothing. Bush 2, oh, but the only folks that they can point to are three concurring justices who did not carry the day back then and who were rushed and who we think made mistakes. And irrelevant and confused language from an 1892 case that until Bush versus Gore no one had ever heard of before called McPherson versus Blacker. Now by contrast, here's what we do say. By contrast, three other cases, a case called Hildebrandt, a case called Smiley, and AIRC, the Arizona redistricting case, directly rejected earlier ISL claims brought before this court. All three 
squarely held that in Article 1, a state's, quote, legislature, unquote, means, and this is the key definition that all three, in effect, endorsed, the entire state legislative system as defined by the state's master constitution. So that's what these cases held, that a legislature means it, the legislative system, the lawmaking system as defined by the state constitution. Even more recently, this court's high-profile Rucho opinion, that was about gerrymandering, decided by the Chief Justice, went out of its way to embrace the Arizona case. Except for Justices Barrett, Amy Coney uh, Barrett, and Jackson, Justice Katenji Brown Jackson, every member of the current court has authored or joined a court opinion directly repudiating ISL. These, this is argument from precedent. We think those precedents are principled and originalist. There is no way Hildebrandt, Smiley, and the Arizona case could have come out the way they did or Rucho been written the way it was if ISL were valid. Indeed, petitioners all but admit, the ISL crowd, in a certain footnote, they can win only if the Arizona redistricting case is the redistricting commission case is overruled. But then Smiley and Governor's veto pens would logically be the next to go because you know you would have been reputing the idea it's a lawmaking system as defined by the state constitution. Such a dire direct assault on Smiley's unanimous, venerable, correctly decided originalists, you see, nonpartisan and deeply entrenched ruling, that was 1932, to, to, to try to really call this into question, we say would be catastrophic for the country, the Constitution, and this court. We're not talking about Roe versus Wade that has been attacked from day one, was never unanimous, attacked from day one, was not remotely originalist, and has festered forever. Smiley is the exact opposite on all those things. It's 100 years old, um, and um, on day one it was unanimous, and until the ISL crowd came along, no one ever thought, you know, it, it was wrong. Um, and none of the dissenters in the Arizona case actually said Smiley is wrong. Even today, the, the petitioner is saying, oh, you can keep Smiley. The problem is, logically, you can't. And some amici have said, on the ISL side, have said just that. A guy named Jonathan Mitchell, I think, who is the author of that, the SB8 statute. I think he has filed an amicus brief where he actually says, actually, Smiley is analytically the next to go. He's a smart academic who understands the logic of the position. But if that's what we're really talking about here, oh my gosh. If we're going to un undo the rules that have been in place in every state, to repeat, for you know, more than 100 years, which is that the governor is part of this process through the veto pen. Wow. Does the uh, court ever sort of split the baby in the sense that, well, you know, it, this would be a logical extension, but it's not workable, so we're not going to do it, you know, or, or something like that, where they say, well, governors can stay, but the rest can go, just sort of making up a standard based on what's actually been done in the past rather than what the Constitution says. Well, you can make up all sorts of stuff, and there's a name for that. It's called Roe versus Wade, and, and Dobbs repudiated that. It's called substantive due process, and I've been a principled critic of that. So, so if you're going to make stuff up, then let's just all go. Let, let, Andy, let's close down the podcast. You know, let, you know, because they—that's not what constitutional law is. Judges just making shit up. 
It's just, that's, that, and, and I respect the justices enough. I could be proved wrong, you know, in this case, to think they won't do that once it becomes crystal clear to them all that when they reach a fork in the road, they have to take it. It's either the legislature understood as an entity, and that does include the governor, or it's the lawmaking system. Those are the only two genuinely coherent op and, um, interpretations of the word legislature. And to repeat, the one that we're favoring was adopted in 1789 in Massachusetts and New York, was presupposed by a whole bunch of other states at the founding, was emphatically affirmed by Smiley in 1932, and there are other cases before and after that are completely consistent with that line, and has and is how all the states have basically operated for a very long time. Question nine? Yes. What about ISL for Article 2? And this section is, I got to say, one of my favorite sections. It's utterly brilliant, and it's Vix. And all you know, honor to my kid brother and co-author. And when he first said this to me, I pushed it aside. I said, no, no, no. And then he said it again. I said, no, no, no. And then it finally sank through. And I said, oh, my gosh, Vic, this is brilliant. We got we to gotta highlight this. Okay. In the real world, a lot of people, congressional elections are important, but actually Article One says that whatever state legislatures do, Congress can override them. The, real, the biggest prize is presidential system, Article 2 ISL, can state legislatures going forward say, we, the independent legislature of Wisconsin, of Pennsylvania, of Michigan, of Arizona, of Georgia, we are going to pick electors ourselves, notwithstanding anything in the state constitution that says it's the voters. That's the biggest prize of all, because if they can, they've just pulled a huge uh, John Eastman-like legal maneuver that steals the next election. So... Our, this case is about Article One ISL, but of course we need to think about Article Two ISL, and here's what Vic wrote. Although not at issue in this case, Article Two may be on the court's mind, given that many have assumed that ISL works the same for Articles One and Two. In fact, were petitioners' convoluted logic to prevail for Article One, ISL for Article Two would necessarily fail. Hmm. For presidential electors, Article 2 provides that each state shall appoint electors in a manner the legislature thereof may direct. Unlike Article 1, Article 2 makes each state, not the legislature thereof, the empowered actor. That is, each state, not each state legislature, is authorized and obligated to appoint presidential electors. True, Article 2 mentions legislatures, but says only the state legislatures may not shall or must, direct the manner of elections. So even if legislature somehow were to mean an unconstrained or independent body rather than a lawmaking system, the words of Article 2 that, about the presidency, by their very terms, do not require that this be the body that adopts presidential selection regulations. Attempting to compensate for their lack of serious originalist arguments, petitioners fixate on their awkward interpretation of the word legislature in Article 1. Well, consistency demands that they must fixate equally on the fact that Article 2 empowers each state and not each state legislature, and that Article 2 says that state legislatures may but need not be involved. Now, to be clear, 
we're not suggesting that ISL works for Article 1, but not for Article 2. It doesn't work for either. But were the, this court, the Supreme Court, to embrace ISL for congressional elections, this embrace could only be based on a very particular kind of faux textualist way of parsing Article 1. Neutral principles would then require the same judicial parsing of Article 2, which in turn would doom our ISL for Article 2. This is not what petitioners would want, but they would be hoisted by their own petard. So here's what Vic's saying in this section. It's, it's really amazing. Okay, even if you win ISL for Article 1, you've, you've won a little skirmish, but you lose actually the, 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 the big one, the war, which is actually Article 2. Because you could only win in some, uh, with some weird little textualist theory that if you would apply it to Article 2, would actually cut the other way. So there's a term for that. It's called a Pyrrhic victory. Yes. Where you, you, know, you win a battle, and the fact that you won that battle causes you to lose the war. Yes, and Vic, brilliant stuff. Very proud of you. And no one else has ever seen this before. So, wow. Okay, so not much more to say to, on that, but hopefully it will never come up because they won't win the case on Article 1. And, you know, Vic may be taking some of the motivation and passion, the wind, out of the sails of the ISL crowd now because, you know, oops, you know, it's, it's like now when they realize, oh, my goodness, this isn't going to get us where we want to go. We're trying to mangle the Constitution in all these ways to get us to a certain result, but we can't get there, you know, um, through this theory, in fact. And that, this is an example, uh, audience, where it's helpful to have the, the brief in front of you yeah. so you can actually see the words and, yes. you know, see wh wh how this applies. I agree. Because Vic, when he explained it to me over the phone a couple of times, I've, I didn't quite get it at first, but now I do. Mm -hmm. So dictum is allowed in briefs, I guess. Because <laughs> this isn't the, really the question before the court. No, but we, but we think that the, the court might... And we're trying to be friends of the court and address the questions that they might have on their minds. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get to the last question. Last one. Okay. Must the court, this court, address ISL in this case? We say, no, this is what in legal terminology is called an off-ramp. You know, we're giving them an alternative way of deciding the case. It's principled, and um, it's up to them. We're, we're just advising, uh, giving them their legal options as genuine amici, friends of the court. Um, and we're trying to be just very straight. Um, we are anti-ISL, but if you don't want to reach ISL issues, you don't have to. Here's another legal option that's available to you with all due respect. May it please the court. This court could instead affirm on the narrow ground that the North Carolina Supreme Court has concluded that the North Carolina legislature has chosen to enlist state courts in guaranteeing that congressional elections in the state conform to state constitutional principles, even if the North Carolina Constitution somehow does not apply of its own force. It applies because the state legislature has chosen to incorporate it by reference. If the U.S. Supreme Court has any doubt about this, it could remand to the court below, that is the North Carolina Supreme Court, for clarification. Okay, so here's some elaboration. This is slightly technical, but I think our audience will get it within the next minute or two. Even if 
a state legislature were somehow free to ignore its parent state constitution. That is, like, even if you, you know, believe in some strong version of ISL, the state legislature operates independently of a state constitution, that state legislature could surely choose to abide by its state constitution and to abide and to invite state courts to enforce that state constitution as the backdrop of all election law statutes, state and federal. The North Carolina legislature has seemingly done just that by conferring jurisdiction on its state courts to entertain claims of constitutional violation in both federal and state elections. Suppose the North Carolina legislature had passed a hyper-explicit statute unambiguously specifying that the state constitution's election law principles as definitively construed by the state Supreme Court, should apply to all federal elections, and that the state Supreme Court should disregard any statutory language inconsistent with the state constitution. If so, surely the North Carolina Supreme Court could have done what it did in this case. If the statute, had, the state legislature had said really clearly, we want you, state Supreme Court, to apply state constitutional principles to federal elections. Maybe they don't have to apply, but we choose to make them apply because we respect our parents. You know, we, we, um, we are dutiful children of our parent constitution. The question thus becomes, are the North Carolina jurisdictional enactments in the present case best interpreted as functionally identical to our hypothetical hyper-explicit statute? This is a pure question of state law for the North Carolina Supreme Court, whether the state statutes at issue, in effect, are the equivalent of explicitly telling the state Supreme Court, apply the state constitution in this situation, not just to the state elections, but to the federal elections. So what sort of things would the North Carolina state legislature have done that would count as a jurisdictional enactment? They just passed statutes saying we want the North Carolina courts to have jurisdiction over any and all claims involving any election matter. And are there other things that they could have done that would be tantamount to that that aren't so explicit? Well, I'm sure there are lots of things that they could have done. There are probably an infinite number of things that they could have done. Here's another way of putting the point. It's going to be utterly screwy. And I did explain this in an earlier article in the Supreme Court Review that Vic co-authored, and 10 years before that in a lecture that I gave in Florida all about Bush versus Gore. Think about how screwy the system would be where you go to vote as a voter on election day and you vote for, let's say it's 2024, for president, for Congress. There's a Senate, a U.S. Senate contest on the ballot. You vote for state assemblyman, for state senator, for some city races and county races. You vote for dog catcher, for zoning board. Think about how, how screwy it is that, of course, the state constitution, of course, applies for the governor's race if it's on the ballot or the state senate race or the state assembly race or the mayor's race. So... Of course, the state constitution applies to all of that, and the state Supreme Court is the one who interprets all that. And it would be really weird if a completely different set of rules um, applied to the, the federal part of the election. Because, you know, we have an integrated ballot, so, and what kind of rules am I going to talk about? Where's the polling place? What day 
you know, uh, how many days in advance do you need to get an absentee ballot? What rules, if any, um, are there for absentee ballots? Do you need to have a, a reason or not? When do the polls open? When do the polls close? Do hanging chads count? Um, what kind of pencil or pen do you have to use in filling out the forms and all the rest? It would be really, there are a gazillion issues like this. Can you drop it off, you know, and, and where can you drop off your ballot? It would be really weird if we had two different sets of election rules for the federal election component and the state election component. So unless the state legislature speaks really clearly, I think we can assume that because they've created an integrated election system, they want it administered by one set of election officials using one set of election rules. Now, the election officials are going to be state election officials and state judges, and for everything else on the ballot, of course the state constitution directly applies. And so even if somehow in ISL land, state constitution doesn't directly apply to the congressional elections or presidential elections, a state legislature could surely choose to make it applicable. And unless they say otherwise, they surely have in most states, almost all states, in fact chosen to make it applicable because that will enable them to administer the election sensibly in a unitary way as has happened until the ISL crowd came along and tried to create this completely chaotic new uh, system with new rules tossing um, settled understandings overboard. Right. I mean, unless the legislature had gone out of its way to create a separate ballot and separate a whole set of separate rules for the federal parts of the election, then I think you can assume that they meant for the same rules to apply. If they didn't go out and create other rules, then all that would leave only no rules. Exactly. So and, and who, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, should basically interpret what the legislature, the state legislature in North Carolina was trying to do in its um, grid of, of statutes, um, substantive and procedural and jurisdictional? The state Supreme Court, because that's what they do day in and day out. Right, well, makes sense to me. So now... <laughs> okay, it, so if it, only, Andy, if we could get you on the Supreme Court, we'd be home. So basically what you're saying here is, okay, Supreme Court, you can just say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but so we have to ask the North Carolina Supreme Court whether that actually is what happened. Exactly. If and there's if, any doubt whatsoever, you can just send it back to the North Carolina Supreme Court to be a little bit more clear about that. And then you don't even have to reach ISL because you can say, even if the state legislature could choose to operate independently and outside the structure of its state constitution, even if it could choose to, to float out there on its own, it has chosen not to do so because it actually makes much more sense for there to be one set of election rules on election day. And there are a lot of amicus briefs on this as well, in a sense. There, uh, the peop there are briefs saying, oh, this would make the election very difficult. We'd have to hold two elections or... You know, and, and there are expensive. A, and there are a lot of functional amicus briefs on that. Truth be told, this was an argument that I put forth in 2010. I had been, I tried to explain this to uh, the litigants way back in Bush versus Gore, but I put forth in 2010 in a lecture that I gave, the Dunwoody Lecture, an endowed lecture on, in Florida, all about Bush versus Gore. And when I, ta and then when I talked about this in 2010, almost... I mean, it was just echoing into a void. No one seemed to pay any attention whatsoever to this. 
but now I think a lot of people have come on board with, with, with this um, ideas. Like on, on Article 2 ISL versus Article 1, that's kind of one of Vic's bigger ideas on on this one, that's kind of one of my in old ideas. Steve added a whole bunch of stuff on um, Calder versus Bull and unitary executive theory, elaborating Vic's idea of IHD. This was a genuinely collaborative project in which um, um, uh, Steve is a very big believer in Erie and federalism, so um, and the Tenth Amendment and the Republican Government Clause. So, so this brief actually does pull together a lot of distinctive ideas that each of us has put forth for a very long time, uh, well before this litigation. So all that's left is the conclusion. We respectfully urge this court to affirm the judgment below. I could have written that one. Oh, it turns out, I'm not going to go into all the details, <laughs> there was a backstory there. Yeah. Maybe after the case is decided, uh, audience, I'll tell you the juicy backstory. Now, there's a whole bunch of uh, footnotes, um, and I don't, I don't think that we're going to go over them now because we, we shouldn't. We, 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 you know. <laughs> we shouldn't. And we're uploading this so people can read the footnotes for themselves. Correct. Yeah, it's on the website and it's on the Supreme Court site as well. Yeah. So you can catch them there. And you can write in with questions. And just a word on questions. You know, we've been receiving a lot of great questions, and uh, you probably noticed we haven't been answering them. Um, Truthfully, it's. It, I think that a lot of effort's been focused on the brief. Yes. And uh, but last few weeks. Yes, and we've got you know I think one more episode to talk about the brief in the short term. Oh yes, you want to tell him who's going to be on next week? Yes, we have the pleasure of hosting Steve Calabresi, so I'm sure you're going to want to hear from him. It should be very interesting, and we'll we'll get his perspective on the brief as well. And in the meantime, please tell three friends about the podcast. See you next week. Thank you.